So today we are talking about marriage, hopefully with a better perspective than what we just saw in that video. Now I know that not everyone here is married, but I do believe that this topic is relevant for all of us. For one, many of you who are not currently married will be married at some point in the future. And on top of this, we all have an influence on the lives of people who are married. So this is a topic that is relevant for us all. Now God's design in marriage is that two become one. That no longer are husband and wife operating as independent individuals, but instead are working together in unity with one another. But when we talk about two becoming one, there are oftentimes problems and difficulties. And if I were to summarize the problems and difficulties of two becoming one into one phrase, I would probably choose self-centeredness. This self-centeredness undermines healthy marriage because all of us naturally want our way. In marriage, husband and wife have a hard time to prioritize the other person because we all want things our way. I want my plans, my desires. I want my feelings to be the ones that are prioritized. I'm focused on my frustrations and my schedule and just my ways of doing things. And this is why we oftentimes have problems in marriage. Because before someone is married, they call the shots in their lives for the most part. Because a single unmarried person is the one, again, who calls the shots. They're the one who are the primary decision maker in their lives on how they're going to uh, coordinate their schedule, how they're going to spend their money, what friendships they're going to prioritize, what their general values are going to be. Along with countless little tiny daily decisions, they have the, the, the ability to call the shots in that situation. But things change when people get married. Because me, myself, and I changes into we, us, and our. And that transition frequently is not easy. I mean, you just look at the divorce rate in our country. 50% of first marriages end in divorce. 60% of second marriages, 70% of third marriages end in divorce. Why? Well, you could list any number of different reasons, but for majority of reasons why divorce happens, the underlying root cause is some form of self-centeredness. You also look at the fact that, that many young adults are, are pushing marriage to later and later if they get married at all. Why is this? I think the root issue is still oftentimes related to self-centeredness. Because there are career goals and financial goals that people want to achieve before they get married. They want to have fun. They want to be free before they're tied down in marriage. On top of this, many young adults are afraid of marriage. They, they look at the divorce rate and think, why would I want that? Why do I need commitment? I can have fun, I can pursue goals, and I, I can have good friends, I can even have romantic relationships, but I don't need that commitment. It comes back to self-centeredness so many times. This is why in premarital counseling, when I'm working with couples leading up to their wedding and to their marriage, I always talk with them through Philippians chapter 2, verses 3 and 4, which says, Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, consider others better than yourselves. Each of you should look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. Now, this passage is not written about marriage specifically, but it is a crucial mentality to live out 
in marriage. And so with couples, not only do we talk through this passage, but I even encourage them to memorize it. Why? Because this mentality is crucial to to countering the self-centeredness that we all naturally have. And it's also crucial just for inspiring a healthy marriage. So I want to invite you this morning as we continue to look into this topic to turn in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 5. Ephesians chapter 5. Ephesians is a letter written by the Apostle Paul. It is all about applying gospel truths to our lives. We see that gospel truths should lead to gospel living. And today's passage applies the gospel to marriage. Now a little bit of historical context here. This part of Ephesians that we're coming up on during the next few weeks is known as a household code. Back in the ancient world, household codes were common, usually written by philosophers or religious leaders in order to help people understand how they should operate within their their households, with the relationships within their households. And household codes back in the ancient world typically focused on three different relationships within households. The husband-wife relationship the parent-child relationship, as well as the relationship between masters and slaves. And here in the book of Ephesians, Paul utilizes that same basic structure when talking about how people should interact, but the content of how husbands and wives and parents and children and even, even masters and slaves in that context should interact is very different because they are transformed by the gospel. So I want to invite you to follow along in your Bibles um, as I read for us. Let me pray for us first, actually, and then we'll dive into Ephesians 5. So let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for marriage. We thank you uh, for the good things that marriage provides. The love and the stability and the, the, just the, the support and the, the people that we have in our lives to walk with us through the ups and downs. There are so many blessings in marriage, yet, Lord, we also look at marriage in our culture, even the experience that many of us have had with marriage, and realize that marriage is hard. And marriage can leave a lot of pain and a lot of hurt, a lot of wounds that, that don't heal very well. And Lord, we come to a passage today that also has parts that may push us a little bit and make us a bit uncomfortable. But Lord, I pray that today we'll come to this passage with open hearts, with a willingness to learn from your Holy Spirit and from your Word, which is living and active, and it's still relevant to our lives today, Lord, to help us to learn how to live with healthy marriages, whether we are married or how to influence healthy marriages in the lives of those around us. And I pray that in the process that we will stand more in awe of Jesus. We pray these things in his name. Amen. All right, now I invite you to follow along as I read Ephesians 5, picking up in verse 22. Paul writes, Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle, or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, 
because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. Now, I first of all want to lay out some context for this passage. Last week, we zoomed in on Ephesians 5.18, which says, Do not get drunk on wine, which leads to debauchery. Instead, be filled with the Spirit. And the idea of being filled with the Spirit is allowing God to control our lives. So we are all called to surrender control to the Holy Spirit. Now, moving on in the passage, approaching our passage that we're looking at today, we see a number of results of the Spirit-filled life. The final result that Paul lists is in verse 21, when he says that the result of the Spirit-filled life is submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Now, this idea of submitting to other people is the idea of denying ourselves and prioritizing what would ultimately benefit the other person. So we are all called to submit to one another in that way. It's the opposite of self-centeredness. And so we see that the Holy Spirit empowers us to submit ourselves to the good of others. So that is some of the context of what we looked at last week. Now moving from last week's passage to this week's passage, we see that Paul is applying this principle of mutual submission to marriage. In fact, as we move on into today's passage, we see that verses 22 and 24 apply the mentality of submission to wives. And then verses 25 through 33 apply this principle of submission, of denying ourselves and prioritizing the good of others to husbands. And one of the ways that we see this idea of mutual submission in verse 21 applies to wives and husbands through the next passage is because verse 22, the first verse in our passage today, has no verb in it. Now you may read it and think it does have a verb. It says, wives, submit to your own husbands. In the original language, that when Paul wrote this in Greek, the verb was not there. The verb instead was supplied by verse 21. So if you were to read verse 21 and 22 together in the original language, Paul wrote, Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ, wives to your own husbands. So there's a continuation. We are called to mutually submit to one another. And one of the application points is that wives submit themselves to their husbands. So it's a call that wives should deny yourself and prioritize what is best for your husband. Now, I know that this topic of submission is not a super comfortable topic for for many people. And in fact, unfortunately, this passage has been taken out of context or it's been misinterpreted and misapplied in many marriages with horrible consequences. This passage is not saying that husbands are to be the king and wives are to be the doormat. Unfortunately, though, that's what's lived out in many marriages. And unfortunately, there are a lot of marriages out there in which abuse from a husband abusing the wife, they've used this passage to support that and to enable that. And then the wife in that context, when this passage is misinterpreted and misapplied, feels like she must just accept that. Because after all, it says in this passage that a wife should submit in everything to her husband. So, so unfortunately, there are a lot of marriages out there in which the husband is abusing the wife in various ways, whether emotionally or, or verbally or, or physically or, or in any variety of different capacities. And the wife feels like, well, I just need to, to endure that because I'm called to submit to my husband. 
That is horrible. And that is completely twisting what Paul is saying here. Now, now we see in this passage that, that wives, it says, should submit in everything to their husbands. But in everything, part of what that's referring to is the idea that wives are not independent of their husbands. That in everything, wives are called to deny themselves and to prioritize what is best for their husband. In everything, there should not be parts of a wife's life that are completely independent from the relationship that she has with her husband. Yet we also have to see here that, I mean, mean, marriage is two becoming one. But remember, mutual submission is a two-way street. In verse 25 and 28, in the rest of the passage, Paul addresses husbands and shows that husbands have a significant role here as well. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Jumping down to verse 28. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. And so we we saw that wives should deny themselves and prioritize what's best for their husband. But on the other side of the coin, husbands are called to deny themselves and prioritize what's best for their wives. It goes both directions here. And this would be completely radical and scandalous back in the first century when this was written. Because back then, again, there were a lot of household codes floating around from philosophers and religious teachers, including even from people as famous as Aristotle. But in all these other household codes outside of the Bible, women were treated as completely inferior. In fact, women were treated as property of their husbands. And the husband in a household would be seen as the unquestioned authoritative boss. And the wife is there just to serve him. But, but this idea of the husband denying himself and prioritizing what is best for the wife, that would be completely absurd in the minds of people back in the first century. But remember, Jesus came and Jesus changed a lot. You look at how Jesus interacted with women around him back in that culture. He treated women with respect and with care, with honor and dignity, with kindness. It shocked people around him, but you can see here in Ephesians 5 the influence that Jesus had on how husbands and wives are to relate to each other. Husbands, deny yourself and prioritize what is best for your wife. Now in this passage, there are some significant indicators that husbands do have a leadership role in marriage. Yet, in this passage, you never see anything that says, husbands, you are the boss, so act like the boss and man up. It doesn't say that. It doesn't say husbands act like the boss in your marriage. Instead, Paul says, husbands, serve your wife. Husbands, love your wife just as Christ served and loved the church. And it gives Jesus as our ultimate example of sacrificial service. Look with me back to this passage, picking up in verse 25. It says, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. So we see again that Jesus is the perfect example of sacrificial service. Verse 25 says, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Jesus literally died in his sacrificial service for his people, the church. 
And that is to be the model for husbands and how they serve their wives. That, they, that husbands would be willing even to go to the point of death in order to protect their wife. Now, this idea of selflessly serving and sacrificially serving should not just be focused on the big things, like let's, let's just do these big obvious things to serve. It, it comes down to just everyday practical things. I mean, I could list a bunch of things like whether it's washing dishes or cleaning up messes or taking care of the kids or running an errand that needs to be run real quick or something like that. But really, it should just be a, a mentality that pervades everything that a husband does, that the husband's role in marriage is to serve his wife selflessly and sacrificially, just like Jesus serves the church. Verse 26 says that, that Jesus did this in order to sanctify her. The idea of sanctification is the idea of growing in holiness. Now, truly growing in holiness, what, what, what Paul is talking about here in terms of Jesus sanctifying the people within the church, that is the work of the Holy Spirit. I mean, we cannot sanctify someone else. And it is never a good idea for a spouse to try to change their spouse. That does not work very well. So the goal is not to try to change people. Well, we should still be able to encourage or even inspire and empower growth in the lives of other people around us. So husbands have a role in helping to empower growth in their wives, encouraging their wife. Um, if their wife wants to use skills or talents or gifts in a, very, in a certain way, to encourage and empower that, to enable that to happen. I think back to when I was in elementary school and into the early part of middle school. My mom wanted to go back to school for some more education. Before I was born, my mom was a high school science teacher. But then she stopped teaching when I was born and then continued to stop teaching when my sister was born. But when I was in late elementary school, my mom wanted to go back to get her Ph.D. And so she, she started going to school. But the school that she went to, I was from Missouri. Uh, she was going to Missouri. That was two hours from my home. And most of her classes were in afternoons and evenings. And so there would be a couple days a week, every week for years, that my mom would not be home till 11 o'clock or 12 o'clock at night. And so whose responsibility was it at that point to care for the kids? It was my dad's. And so he would have a long day of work. He would pick up my sister and I from the babysitter. He'd bring us home. He'd prepare supper for us. He would take care of us until bedtime. He'd put us to bed. And then when my mom got home at night, she would come up and, and kiss us. And she said I would always cringe when she kissed me, even in my sleep. <laughs> so, you know, late elementary, early, especially early middle school. Yeah, you don't really like your mom kissing you. But, but one of the things I remember, my dad never complained about that responsibility that he had. I remember just how much he was encouraging her to pursue that education, even though it required sacrificial service. On his part. Now, I mean, my sister and I certainly have lots of memories of the meals he made, especially lots of frozen corn that was cooked in the microwave and tastes like rubber then. We still remember that, but you know what? As time has passed, we remember it with fond memories. But again, my dad never complained. Instead, he was diligent and sacrificial to empower my mom to get her education, to get her Ph.D. She became a college professor, and, I mean, she's really come alive in that role through the years. Being able to teach more science on the college level, which she loves, and really be able to mentor a lot of college women, being like a mom to many of them. 
And on top of that, she has used that platform to lead science camps and science clubs for hundreds of children to teach them to love science as well. And so she's really come alive in that. And to me, this is a great picture of how God is calling husbands to empower their wives to grow and to flourish. A husband should be willing to do whatever he can do to help his wife's well-being and wholeness and flourishing. That's a model of what Jesus provides for us. Verse 27 says so that he's doing all this, Jesus is, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. The church, God's people, as he is transforming us, is becoming more and more beautiful, more and more prepared to meet him in heaven one day. And this is a picture of what the goal is as a husband is just investing love and service into his wife, that she becomes more radiant and more beautiful over time. And that really should be taking place, that the, the wife is becoming more beautiful, for not, not, not only on the outside, but also on the inside, in large part because of the influence of her husband's love that he has for her that's manifested in very practical ways. So we see here that the call for husbands is to serve. I think of Jesus, Mark chapter 10. Jesus said of himself, The Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. So Jesus was not focused on what he could get for himself. He was focused on giving. That's to be the husband's role in a marriage. But really think about it. All these things we've been talking about that Paul's listing as the husband's role in terms of serving and loving and sacrificing and denying yourself and doing what's best for your spouse, the wife has the same responsibilities. The wife herself as well should not focus on being served, but on serving. And so the image we get here in this passage for marriage is that it is a joyful union in which each spouse gives 100%. A joyous union in which each spouse gives 100%. A marriage should not be about just, you know, let's just meet in the middle. You give 50%, I'll give 50%. No, a marriage is designed to be each spouse giving 100% of what they have. Because you think about Jesus. He did not just come and just give partially of himself. He came and gave it all. He sacrificed it all. And that is to be our model in marriage for how we relate to one another. We're willing to sacrifice and to serve and give 100% of what we have. And that is what helps lead to a joyful union in marriage. It's been said, happy wife, happy life. I think there's a lot of truth in that. But I think it's equally true, happy husband, happy life. The reality, though, is that it doesn't rhyme quite as well. But, but our goal in marriage should be the flourishing of our spouse. Self-centeredness undermines that so frequently. But remember the example of Jesus. He did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom. Now, obviously this is an ideal for us. We know that marriage oftentimes does not live up to this ideal of each spouse joyfully giving 100% of what they have to the other person. It oftentimes does not happen fully But if you want a starting point of something that that can help reality grow closer to this ideal that Paul is laying out here, you can start by listening and serving. And then don't stop. 
Listening is a key part of communication. We, we oftentimes think of communication as speaking, and that is a key part of communication as well. Communication goes both ways. Communication that's healthy in a marriage or in any relationship needs to include honestly and openly sharing what's on our minds. That needs to happen in a healthy marriage. That oftentimes doesn't happen because people are timid. They hold their thoughts inside themselves. But we need to verbalize what's going on in our minds because our spouses cannot read our minds. But on the other side, we need to be people who listen. And listen well, not just formulating, okay, how am I going to respond to what they're saying, but truly listening with an intent to understand. And that's why I say, I mean, we are better at speaking than at listening. We need to start by listening, seeking to understand where the other person is coming from. I oftentimes say um, that in marriage, you will have at least a reasonably healthy marriage if you keep two things going strong. That's communication and trust. I think besides Jesus, those are the two keys to a healthy marriage. Communication and trust. If you keep healthy communication and healthy trust going, you'll have uh, at least a reasonably to, to terrifically healthy marriage. But if those start to break down, the marriage is headed in a very unhealthy direction quickly. And usually a breakdown in communication comes first, followed by a breakdown in trust. And so we need communication, we need trust, we need to listen, but also we need to serve. And serving looks a whole wide variety of different ways. But the main thing is just to have this mentality of I'm here to serve. I'm here to build up and look for opportunities. It, it makes a world of difference. So we start by listening and serving and then don't stop. Now there's one more topic in this passage I want to dig into as we close. This is going to shift gears a little bit, but it's still about marriage. But it helps us to see that, that marriage is such an amazing thing because of how it's related to Jesus. So I want to look here in this passage. Look with me, picking up in verse 29. It says, For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. So Ephesians 5, we have to understand, is not just about human marriage. It's also about the marriage between God and his people. So I want to look at this idea of Jesus and his bride and see how Jesus and how he is, is pursuing his bride is a picture of how human marriage should operate as well. So let's look at Jesus and his bride. Throughout the Old Testament, Israel was pictured as an adulterous wife. Through Jeremiah, the prophet, God said, I remember the devotion of your youth, how as a bride you loved me and followed me through the desert. However, you broke off your yoke and tore off your bonds. You said, I will not serve you. Indeed, on every high hill and under every spreading tree, you lay down as a prostitute. Another place in Jeremiah says, I mean, jealous for his bride's devotion, God beckoned her, return, faithless people, declares the Lord, for I am your husband. So you see this imagery, a marital imagery of God and his people. Israel was lost in her sin and replied, it's no use. I love foreign gods and I must go after them. So like a woman unfaithful to her husband, so you have been unfaithful to me, O house of Israel, declares the Lord. So, but even though Israel was unfaithful, 
an adulterous wife. God kept pursuing his people, ultimately by sending Jesus. And Jesus came, symbolically, as the bridegroom. When John the Baptist's followers were concerned early in, very early in Jesus' ministry about so many people going to Jesus rather than John the Baptist, John the Baptist replied, The bride belongs to the bridegroom. The friend who attends the bridegroom waits and listens for him and is full of joy when he hears the bridegroom's voice. That joy is mine, and it is now complete. So Jesus is the groom, and God's people are the bride. Yet the bride was a mess. It's like the image I showed a few weeks ago of a woman in a muddy dress. Now, continuing this metaphor, she lives in a world that is muddy, and she loves to wallow and to play in the mud. She is stained and broken on both the outside and on the inside. But Jesus was working to purify her. He said in Ephesians, or it says in Ephesians 5 that Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that, he, that she might be holy and without blemish. So Jesus purifies his bride, the church, and church leaders worked to prepare her for the wedding. In 2 Corinthians chapter 11, Paul pictures himself as the father of the bride who's making sure his daughter of the church is ready for the wedding. 2 Corinthians 11, 2 says, Paul is saying, I am jealous for you with a godly jealousy. I promised you to one husband, to Christ, so that I might present you as a pure virgin to him. So church leaders are working to prepare the church for the wedding. And so we now are anticipating the wedding supper of the Lamb. We see in Revelation chapter 19, verse 7, sometime in the future, it says, Let us rejoice and be glad and give him glory. For the wedding of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. And so this marriage between Jesus and the church is what Paul is referring to in Ephesians chapter 5, when he says, No one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Then Paul quotes from, Ephesians, or from Genesis chapter 2, the origin of human marriage, and says, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. But then Paul applies this to Jesus and the church, saying this mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. And so now we see that marriage is not just a human institution. Marriage is not merely to be about a husband and a wife here on this earth on the horizontal human level. There's also a vertical level, a divine level, that our marriages on earth are meant to be a foretaste when they're healthy, when they're vibrant, of the relationship between God and his people. And we look forward to that wedding supper of the Lamb one day when all the brokenness and the pain and the unfortunate mass shootings and all these things of this world will be done and we'll be united with God in heaven. We look forward to that day, the wedding supper of the Lamb. And he's given us a different supper that we know as the Lord's Supper to help us remember the sacrifice that it took to purify us, to reconcile us with him. And so in just a moment, we're going to celebrate the Lord's Supper to remember Jesus' sacrificial love on our behalf. I'm going to pray for us, and we're going to sing together, and then we'll remember the Lord's, or we'll celebrate the Lord's Supper to remember the love of Christ. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you love us so richly. 
Your love was certainly not just abstract or theoretical. It was practical. And it was incredibly sacrificial. It took you to the cross to pay the penalty we, that we deserved for our sins. Lord, we want to say thank you. Lord, I pray for marriages, particularly marriages that are associated with our church family here. I pray that where there is currently strife or division or animosity or just a lack of care and warmth, Lord, I pray that you will restore the bonds of unity there. Restore the joyous union. I pray that you will motivate spouses, all of us who are married, to give more of ourselves just as Jesus gave of himself. Lord, I pray that uh, the marriages that will take place within this church family in the future, those who aren't yet married, will be healthy, Christ-centered marriages in which husband and wife love each other deeply. Lord, we thank you for your love for us, and I pray that as we prepare our hearts for communion, that you will impress upon our hearts in a fresh way the depth and the sacrifice of your love. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Thank you.